Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Hello, friends. It's been a long, long time since I last talked to you. Now, listening to me talk, you may think, oh, they have an Arab on their podcast. But that is not the case. It is I, the great actor, Alec Guinness. You might remember me from such films as The Man in the White Suit and Star Wars, as well as last week's film, the great Lawrence of Arabia, by my friend and hated enemy, David Lean. This week... My friends, Brendan and Jason, also possibly enemies. The way they've treated me on this thing. Mm. Yes, I don't like them very much at all. Jason, what do we do to him? I don't know. I just, I mean, we just, we, we invite him on. And uh, Listen, I've, I've got something to say, so you shut your big traps oh. while I finish. Sorry, Mr. Guinness. Thank you. This week, these two quote-unquote men will be exploring a film near and dear to my heart, as a British citizen who remembers the war, who remembers the hard times. This week, uh, Passport to Pimlico. Now, have you ever been to Pimlico? Oh, it is a hole, but it looks quite nice in this movie. So, I suggest you sit back, open a can of delicious fresca, and enjoy. I'm Alec Guinness, brought to you by Fresca. Good night. We gotta stop letting people bring their own sponsors to the show. What? I, I don't know how he got that deal. <laughs> Fresca? I would have thought him being in Star Wars, he would have been locked into some Pepsi contract. Is, it, is Fresca even still a thing? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I drink it uh, on a, a, a regular basis. Jason, not you too. I do. I love. I love a Fresca, Brendan. Oh, I'm no. gonna say it right now. Fresca is the fresh maker. Mentos? No, it's Fresca. <laughs> is that their? Is that their slogan? Mentos? No, it's, it's Fresca. Fresca. <laughs> Oh, this is a podcast. In which we discuss films of a British nature. On a list. That was prepared by people of a British origin. In 1999. In which they partied as if it were that year. Quite. So yes, of course, the British Women's to Top 100 list. Made in 1999. We, every week... I mean, basically every week. We have special episodes every now we and do. then. Yeah, we sometimes have some fun. But, but we're uh, down to business this week, Brendan. This is just straight work. Yeah, because I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. And this week we are talking about number 63 on the list. Passport to Pimlico, an Ealing Studios comedy. And unless you're an aficionado of British film, I bet you've never heard tell of this movie. Because I certainly hadn't. Never. So much like, I believe, two weeks ago when we did I'm Alright Jack... 
No idea. No idea. But before we talk about that, Jason, we need to talk about last week's film because it was a big one. Oh, yeah. So we need to read some comments. We're going to read some comments from Lawrence of Arabia. Or as our friend would say it, Lawrence of Arabia. So, Jason, I did this a little differently. Oh. This time. For Lawrence of Arabia. Oh. Uh, I know we just said we we're going to read some comments, but we did this a little different. I asked I asked for first person we get to recast it. Sure. So our good friend Sean Williams Holt. Did to hear from you, Sean. Did just that. What a good guy. Recasted Lawrence of Arabia with a modern 2019 spin. And saved us the trouble of doing it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing our work. Um, he just wanted to. He just wants to preface this though by saying, "Okay, this isn't easy. I know some are not the right nationality, but at least I didn't whitewash the entire cast." So, um, Ray Fines as King Faisal. <laughs> no. So I'm going to start from the bottom up because we'll get to the more interesting ones at the end. So, Mr. Dryden, who of course we knew was the, the Invisible Man himself, Claude Rains. Yes. Uh, Ian McKellen. Sure. I'm down with that. I, I watch Ian McKellen. I watch Ian McKellen if he plays Lawrence. It wouldn't make any sense, but why not? <laughs> it's like 90 years yeah. old. Auda Abi Tai mm-hmm. Marwan Kenzari. I'm going to assume Sean knows what he's talking about because I have no idea who that is. Me neither, but I do know that Allenby is to be played by Gary Oldman. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So clearly, see, budget is no issue in this I recasting. See, I can see Gary Oldman as like a general type. Yeah. Yeah. No, he could do it. Yeah. Sharif Ali. Remy Malik. Yeah. Actually, yes. That would that's be a not great that, choice. Eh? That's, that's a good... He's the right ethnicity. At least he looks like he's, he's the right ethnicity. He's close to it. He's close. I don't know where he's from, but he's worthy. So. I mean, to be fair, Omar Sharif was e- Egyptian, so yeah. he wasn't even But he right at least was from the area, yeah. such as it was. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't clearly American no. or British. <laughs> Faisal, Riz Ahmed. Like, he actually kind of looks like Prince Faisal. Yeah, and he's the right age. He's the right age, exactly. So that would be even better. I mean, Al Guinness is great, don't get oh, me yeah. wrong. But, you know, casting the right race is a good idea. Right race, right age. Yeah. I think it's white race, white age. <laughs> I'm the white age. The whitest of ages. The age, the age, the age of white. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that, I think that's pretty solid. And then I love this casting, okay? Playing T.E. Lawrence himself, Michael Fassbender. Yeah. I think no, that'd be that, great. That's a perfect casting, I'd that's, say. That's excellent, excellent casting. He's got the um, look. And he needs a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> He's been a couple duds lately. And he's a uh, wonderful actor. I'm looking at you, Assassin's Creed and the Snowman. <laughs> now, trust me, I love those games, but why? The, uh, Assassin's Creed and the Snowman? Yeah. Yeah, the Snowman is one of my favorite PC games of all time. <laughs> Be a weird fucking video game to make out of that movie. <laughs> What's his name? Harry Balls? Uh, Harry Hole. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> I like how Who wrote this movie? I was going to correct you and say, no, it's not that ridiculous, but it's still pretty ridiculous. it is that ridiculous, absolutely. I mean, he's Carol Harry Hole in the book, but I feel also, because it's in Sweden, I think it's like Ole or something like that. I mean, maybe it's a common name there, but you think an English screenwriter would have thought, we can't call this guy Harry Hole. No, (laughs) that's a mistake. (laughs) So let's talk about, let's make a comparison point, as we always do here. This would be a big one too, I'm sure. Yeah, well, yeah, because I mean, Lawrence of Radio is number three on the British Film Institute Top 100 list. So on the American Film Institute top Lawrence 100 of Arabia. List, yeah. Well, it, it's number seven, so it's pretty close. Uh, but on the AFI Top 100 list, at number three is Casablanca. Ooh, that right? is a tough call. Because they're both fucking amazing movies. I know. Mm. I think just because of my a- anglophilism, 
is that the Anglophileism? Sure. I would probably go with Lawrence, but but that is just by the by the closest of nut hairs. Like that is a a tight, tight, tight race. Can we both be pussies right now and sure. do a tie? All right, because <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. Like That's understandable. I, literally, if I if I was to pick one, I would be flipping a coin. You've got one of the most epic epics of all time, but you've also got one of the most iconic films ever made. Like like a, a film that is so iconic that it was made in 1941, and people still quote lines from it, often unknowingly. A film so iconic that Pamela Anderson herself did a remake of it called Barbed Wire. Oh, did not, I did not know that. Did you know that Barbed Wire is basically Casablanca? Is she like a bartender in a, on a foreign planet? And and then she has a guy come and see her, and it's like, oh, it's my old love. And play it again, um, Zorzax. You literally just described the plot of Barbed Wire. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I've never seen it. I've only ever heard of it. <laughs> Honestly, it's like a good bad. It's a pretty Are there titties in it? Uh, not as much as you think. Mm. Like... Pamela Anderson, yes, but very briefly. Hmm. It's it's actually quite surprising how little nudity there is. So we're going to put that on the bottom of the top titties list. Yes. When we get canceled for doing the TFI, <laughs> Titties Film Institute. It's the, only list, it's the only list that Showgirls is at the top of. <laughs> Barbed Wire is only like 95 or something. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I think Showgirls is doing pretty good on IMDb Bottom 100, oh, I, would, I would assume. Should be. I mean, that, yeah. that scene where Jesse Spano fucks Paul Atreides in a pool, oh, the best. <laughs> you refer to him as Dune character. Yeah. <laughs> you don't even mention the fact that I refer to her as her Saved by the Bell character. No, that's fine. That's, that's who she's known for. <laughs> but like Kyle MacLachlan, we were like, oh, I only know him as Paul Atreides? That's, that's my head. Paul Atreides is my default Kyle MacLachlan. I might have like, I might have known if you said like Dale Cooper or okay, something. Okay, well yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. But I watched a Dune more than I ever watched Twin Peaks. Or the mayor of Portlandia. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, Blue Velvet guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But now we got to move on, Jason. We got to move on from the Lawrence of Arabia and do a film that is pretty similar. Yeah, um, almost exactly. This week's movie, Passport to Pimlico. Stab it. like i'm all right jack that jaunty music indicates that we're gonna watch a fun movie that is of course on the bfi's list of iconic themes and dreams number one on that list so you know it can only mean one movie and none other p2p (laughs) sounds like a sexual thing (laughs) well that's peer-to-peer isn't it yeah passport to pimlico which thank you movie for solving our pronunciation riddle or our Absolutely. conundrum last week. Uh, but it is Pimlico, not Pimlico, like I said. Uh, as I understand, a neighborhood in London town. London town? Yeah. Of England. 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 Well, okay, so this is a movie that comes out in 1949. So, Password to Pimlico, number 63 on the list. Uh, before we get into the movie, I'm just going to tell you who's in this one. So we've got Stanley Holloway playing Mr. Pemberton. Uh, Betty Warren is his wife, Connie. Barbara Murray as their daughter, Shirley. Ow, ow, ow! Yeah, 
No, no, uh, no argument here. <laughs> Paul Dupuis as the Duke of Burgundy. John S- John Slater as Frank. Uh, Jane Hilton as Molly. Hermione Baddeley, our old friend Hermione Baddeley from Room at the Top as Edie Randall. Getting more than two minutes of screen time in this A one. A lot more than two minutes. Our old friend Margaret Rutherford oh. as Professor Hatton Jones. Interesting thing about Margaret Rutherford, yes. she played Miss Marple, uh, who was one of Agatha Christie's detectives in later life. So that's really cool. I might have to watch some of those Miss Marple movies now that I've discovered the joy of Margaret Rutherford. I was going to say, and because in this movie, I mean, we'll get into it, but I just want to say right off the top, in this movie, completely different performance oh, than absolutely. I'm All Right Jack, which she was also great in. Oh, she was wonderful, but she was such a, uh, she was very much an upper crust, stuck up kind of lady in I'm All Right Jack, but she's much more, uh, she's much more a... a um, flighty. A flighty uh, uh, kind of uh, eccentric uh, historian. Yeah, slash detective. Yes. <laughs> Which is an odd choice, but a, a choice nonetheless. So, Jason, Password to Pimlico, give us a little bit of uh, context Yeah, here. we need to start off with a little bit of context here, because this movie takes place in Britain in 1948-49. So this yeah. is... So it's contemporary. Very contemporary. Shortly after World War II had concluded. Now, an interesting thing you need to know about England that you probably don't know if you're under the age of 70, was that during World War II and afterwards, there was, straw, there was uh, rationing in effect in England. So what that meant is that if you wanted to buy goods or food or, uh, or p- uh, petrol, you would need a coupon from your ration book. And you only had X number of coupons per week. And you wouldn't get them in the mail like you get McDonald's coupons. No, no sir. You would have to get them from the government. And it was a big crime to, to get ones that weren't yours or to use the ones of the dead, which was a common scam. Oh. Um, so this makes sense during a war that you would ration. Uh, because, you know, we need food for the troops and we have to make the food go around for everybody. But the thing about rationing in England, Brendan, was that it lasted almost nine years after the war was over. It didn't fully end until 1954. Hmm. So so when this movie comes out, it's still happening. Rationing is still going on. Okay. Um, And, yeah, so nine years after the war, that was longer rationing than the war itself, which was six years. Hmm. So, and finally in 1954, the conservatives made good on their promise that they had made to get elected, and they finally ended the last bit of rationing. It was a process over about two years, between 1952 and 1954, but it was finally ended. But that is an important piece of context, because this movie's central uh, kind of sticking point is that uh, when this small area... Well, we'll we'll talk about it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's just talk about the movie. This is a film. This is a film. Produced on uh, on film. On film stock. With a camera. 35 millimeter, I believe. Actors are in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing, playing roles. Black and, and white. it is adequately filmed, and uh, it runs properly at the proper frame rate, and yes. that's all I'm going to say about it. All right. That's my only opinion about it, because I don't, I, I'm a proper reviewer. I only review what matters. I can only review what's objective. To, to talk about the plotter characters would be a, a violation of my personal ethics. Well then, Jason, I just have to say to you... God save the queen. And God save the screen. <laughs> screen and country. No. Okay. Well, no, you know what? I'll, I'll throw my rule out the window. Oh, shit. And we'll talk This about is a big deal. Okay. So it's 1949, and the war is over, but the bullshit continues. Despite the fact that the war has been over for three, four years at this point, rationing remains in effect. And the London neighborhood of Pimlico feels it no less than any other. But they, of course, make the best of it. Stiff upper lip and all that, right? The British, classic. The city is still damaged from various bombs and rockets that have been fired during the Blitz. 
Uh, in fact, in Pimlico, uh, there's a lot, an empty lot, which I assume was where some buildings were at one time, mm-hmm. but we're not there anymore. Uh, and in the middle of that lot is a hole. And in that hole, there was a tree, a rare tree, a rattling tree, tree and a hole and a hole and a bog and a bog down in the valley. Oh, that's a lie. What was actually in the hole was a bomb. You Wait, you told me there was a tree. Nope. I mean, I did, but Jason, that's not the case. You told me there was a fucking tree. I did, but I lied to You're you, Brendan. You're a fucking liar. I am a liar, but because I wanted to surprise you, it was a German bomb. A German bomb? I think they even gave it a name. Did they call it Lisa or or Larry or something? Lisa Larry. Lisa Larry the bomb. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Lisa sounds like a terrible name for a German bomb. Yeah, yeah. I forget Lisa what they call Stein. It. Anyways, so the bomb's there. There's a couple guys working on it, trying to deal with it. They want to get rid of the bomb, obviously. Um, They're trying to defuse it. Yeah. Uh, and this this lot, they, they want to get rid of this bomb because this lot wants to, uh, well, doesn't want. I mean, does a, a lot want anything? They want to sell the land. Well, the council wants to sell the land, but Mr. Pemberton, the owner of the local grocery store, he wants to turn it into a park for the kids. Slash swimming pool. Slash swimming pool, exactly. Yeah. So, which is which is kind of uh, ironic uh, because it's kids playing that kind of set off this whole story. Uh, so kids are playing near the hole and they have a, a wheel of sorts that they're playing with. Because back in those days, you know, there wasn't a lot to do and kids had to make their own fun. And that is a huge fucking wheel, by a real the big way. wheel they were rolling around. And so this wheel rolls down into the pit, falls into the pit, and causes the bomb to explode. <sighs> Very loud bang. And that, ca- of course, when something like that happens, most people will run the other way. But white people, we run toward because we're stupid. And so all the pe- people run to this hole to see what the deal is. Among them, Mr. Pepperton. And Mr. Pepperton stumbles and falls into the hole. Whoa. But while he's down in the hole, Brendan, he sees something. He sees a glint. He sees something that shouldn't be in the hole. But he can't get a good look at it. And he gets rescued and pulled out of the hole before he can fully understand what he has come across. At home, he tells his wife and daughter what he saw. And as they're kind of like cleaning him up, a gold coin falls out of his pants. What a strange thing to find, a gold coin. I thought it was strange that it was in his pants, yeah. though. I was like, he didn't pocket anything. Did yeah, he? no. I mean, where did it come from? How did it get in his pants? Yeah. Somehow it did, though. Oh, and by the way, I just want to note, too, at this point, uh, during this scene where the gold coin falls out of his pants, as his wife notes, that daughter is wearing an uh, inappropriate outfit to answer the door. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but, but, but they don't see anything about her casually lighting up a cigarette uh, from the massive lighter that's on the table. Nope. That's but, fine. But you expose your fucking midriff, you better move out and hi- hide in a Get paper... Get out of here, you hussy. <laughs> move out and hide in a paper bag. That's right. So Mr. Pemberton and his daughter decide that they're going to go back to that hole and find out what the heck is down there. Because if there's one gold coin, there might be more. So when they get down into the pit, they see there's a hole... It's like a wall, and they break through the wall. And when they get inside, piles of treasure. Some, like, like goblets and coins. Of fire? I assume necklaces. And, uh, is there a fire in there, Goblets too? of fire? Well, I mean, uh, and small, a pair of glasses, a little round pair of glasses in there. <gasps> like a, a book on wizarding? You know it. Bound in flesh and inked in blood. And Hermione's in this movie. She is. <laughs> She's much older. Um, well, actually, not that much older. So they're looking around this room, this room full of treasure, this hoard, and they find a picture. And I believe he, I believe uh, Mr. Pemberton recognizes the picture as the... Uh, well, they, they do research. They do some research. Yeah, to find out who it is. He definitely knows it's an old, an, an old guy. Yeah. The guy is probably dead. 
and they find a, a they find some documents like some vellum scrolls which they just casually take out this big long old scroll and they just casually toss it on the ground yeah <laughs> not the really, not the best uh, handling of historical artifacts they didn't really yeah exactly they, they weren't exactly trained in this sort of thing but they go see the local historian professor uh or local historian professor hatton jones played by our friend margaret rutherford it's amazing she's the best so she takes a look at these documents and the painting and confirms it this is a hoard belonging to the late Duke of Burgundy, either Charles the Bold or Charles the Rash, depending on who you talk to. And uh, among the uh, among the stuff in there is a document that indicates that King Edward IV granted him a small piece of England as part of Burgundy. And that part of England happens to be where they are right now, the neighborhood of Pimlico. And it was never rebuked. It was never. It was never. It was never rebuked. It was never uh, withdrawn. Now, the Duke uh, died in battle, or yep. so we were led to believe. Uh, I think it's pretty pretty clear he did die in battle, but the professor doesn't believe that he died. She believes that he escaped, and that he had issue, and those issue had issue, and eventually they left a descendant in these modern times of 1949. That could very well be the Duke of Burgundy. When this information is revealed, things start to go crazy. Since Burgundy is not part of the UK, it isn't subject to the strict rationing laws. And people start throwing out their ration cards. And quickly, the area turns into a huge black market. As vendors, potential vendors, black marketeers and such from outside of Pimlico come into Pimlico to sell. And then tons of people from the rest of London come in to buy. And it's, 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 like, it's like the bazaar at Marrakesh. It is nuts. Madness. It's madness. And everybody's super happy that they can buy uh, as much fish or pantyhose as they want. Drink as long as they want. Exactly. They don't have to worry about it. They're, they're, there's no licensing laws. They're they, in a bar. They can stay up all night. They even get one of the police officers to yeah. kind of be their own police officer. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, but that, that comes when they realize, oh shit, the next day, like, they didn't really... And the next day, Mr. Pemberton is like, oh, we were all just drinking. Like, why? We're not actually going to do that, are we? And they're like, yeah, we are. We're going to do this. And so they do. Uh, and uh, with no jurisdiction, the British government is at a bit of a loss. They don't know exactly what to do because it, it's a royal charter, so they can't just you know pretend it didn't happen. But but they do put their two best men on it. Mm-hmm. And I want to play a little clip of these guys because this is like my idea of like they, they, like a modern movie putting a comedy duo in the movie and they're almost detached from everything else but I just want to play a little bit of them so, so if like if like they did a movie and Paul Shear and Jason Manzoukas were cast as the <laughs> ministers of defense and uh, and the homeland sure yeah so this is uh, just a little clip of them uh, figuring out what to do there's uh, Greg and Straker what this Pimlico stuff top priority the old man wants immediate action now, what are you going to do well I thought as the treasure was arisen with spoils of battle I'd Pass it on to war office. You wouldn't touch it. You see, technically, these Burgundians are aliens. Aliens? Well, then it's your pigeon. No, no, they're undesirable aliens, so it's your pigeon. So you'll have to boot them out of the country. It's their own country. So this is an example of like they're going back and forth. Like I also just love the phrase like it's your pigeon. No, it's your pigeon. Like it's your it's your it's your problem kind of thing. It's that classic uh, uh, as we've seen in other movies of government officials just wanting to foist off uh, their whatever the problem is on somebody else so they don't have to deal with it. Well, Brazil was a great example. I, last week, last week we talked about Lawrence of Arabia, the Arabian Council scene when they're saying, "No, you get the water." It's like, "No, we don't carry water. You're going to have to." We do, do that. not carry water. Yeah. 
the Raul or whatever they were called. <laughs> but yeah, I like their their look because their scenes are almost all like uh, they're almost all like individualized from the rest of the movie. Yes, yes, they're uh, giving an interesting take on the British government of the day. Yeah, good old labor government. So, uh, so yeah, with no jurisdiction, the British. They're, they're kind of at a loss of what to do. The locals do want to negotiate with the government, but the British, you know, they're stickler for procedure. So they point out that they can't negotiate with them directly because they need the Duke of Burgundy president to nominate a council that would then negotiate with them. Yeah, because they enact like, we need the Duke of Burgundy. Um, you need to go, since you're, you're saying you're part of Burgundy, mm. you need to go by the ancient Burgundy laws yeah. of government, which Absolutely. is which is hilarious. Because, like, <laughs> they're Basically, they're just looking for a way to fuck with them at yeah. this point. Point, like to fuck with them or just like like just make them not their problem anymore yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like you're never gonna find someone that knows the age like literally actually you know what i'm gonna play this right now because i i want to play the moment that they have that conversation about like we're gonna have to have the ancient burgundy laws and the way it gets solved immediately because yes. i kind of love this moment now they say it can only be officially recognized if appointed in accordance with the electoral laws of ancient burgundy <laughs> well that seems to settle things Unless, of course, somebody present happens to be familiar with the electoral laws of ancient Burgundy. <laughs> but certainly! It was a custom for the Duke of Burgundy himself to elect a council of two sheriffs, one burgess, and one hoofman or captain of the guard. Who might you be? My name is Sébastien de Charolais, and I come from Dijon, capital of ancient Burgundy. Hmm. Only the Duke himself can appoint a council, unless there is no such person. Ah, oh, but you're wrong. There is such person. I am the Duke of Burgundy. Oh, I am the direct descendant of Maurice de Chardet, who came here in 1477. Therefore, I am the heir to the title. I hope you don't mind. Oh, no, no. I mean, uh, well, I mean, well, it's a bit of a turn-up, isn't it? <laughs> here is my evidence. These documents have been in my family for centuries. I have always thought they were of no value, just an amusing curiosity. But when I read about your discovery, I said to myself, Yes, I bet you did. <laughs> of course, you want them to be examined. Oh, indubitably. So I just like how it's like that moment where they go, well, surely no one's going to know how to do this. Ah, but I do. And he just comes out of nowhere. News apparently travels real fast in 1948 or 49 <laughs> that it could get to France. And then he gets to France that qu- or gets back to England that quickly. It's it's almost cartoonish. Yeah. Quick, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, he shows up and, and he's like, I'm the Duke. And they're like, cool, you got the paperwork, so you're the Duke. And he appoints uh, he appoints his government, his council. Uh, Mr. Pemberton, of course, is appointed as Prime Minister. Edie Randall, Hermione Baddeley is part of it. Yeah, she's in there. Uh, the, the policeman, Ted, is uh, appointed as the head of uh, their police force. And I don't know if Ted was a... <laughs> Ted was a bit young, I think, to be a Boer War veteran, but he had some khaki... Uh, had a khaki shirt and a, and, a pith, and a pith helmet that he was able to get together for his new uniform as their police force. Yes. Uh, and it also includes Mr. Wicks, the head of the bank. Well, and I believe Mr. Pemberton was also a war veteran because they yes. said some, there's a line here where somebody says like, oh, he really misses that white helmet. Mm, mm. So is that like also a Boer War reference? Could or? be. Because uh, I know the actor is about in his late 50s in this movie. So Yeah, but the Boer War was in like the late 1890s. Okay, he the actor was born in 1890. So, so. Like, like Churchill was at, at the Boer War when he was a young man. But, okay. but by this point, Churchill was in his probably mid to late 70s. I was he think. still alive? Oh yeah, no. Chur- oh, Churchill I'm served an another term as Prime Minister yeah. in the 50s. Churchill did stuff in World War II famously and I'm yeah. like, is he still alive? Yeah. Oh yeah, he made it. 
He made it through the war. So, uh, yeah, the British government isn't happy about this black market, as I say, so they take matters into their own hands and surround the entire neighborhood of Pimlico with a bunch of barbed wire, I assume left over from the First World War. Huh, um, immigration stuff. This yeah. doesn't hold up, no, Jason. No, it's not relevant today at all. <laughs> so they, they, so they, they set up this barbed wire, but they also set up a customs booth with uh, the requirement that you need a Burgundian passport to get into the rest of the city. Uh, and vice versa, you, need, uh, you would need your passport, I imagine, to get into... Uh, into this small piece of Burgundy. So they're kind of pissed by this because this makes their lives more difficult. So they decide, well, fuck you. <laughs> if you're going to do that, we're going to start see, we're going to start stopping the trains that come by underneath the, on the tube. And we're going to have to do customs checks on everybody, which they do <laughs> go through the train asking people for their passports. Which also has the crazy scene with the magician. Yes. Just like, do you have any uh, wools or linen or livestock? And he opens his, case and a bunch of birds fly out <laughs> what a great classic uh, classic comedy bit um and of course this pisses off the government and they break off negotiations power water phones they're all cut off food deliveries are stopped and the children uh and those who wish to leave are offered to be evacuated yes pimlico is now essentially under siege like the movie die hard Exactly like the movie Die Hard. So when they begin to run low on water, they send Ted out, their policeman, in his old uniform. He's a spy, Brendan. You know what they do to spies? They execute them. Hammurabi's code? No. Oh. No. International law. Spies, they get no quarter. But he he risks that for his town. And he goes out and basically turns on a water, a water pump that was turned off. Right. Uh, after getting into it with another policeman who seems to think he's not supposed to be there. No, oh, after he refuses to a, arrest a drunk guy. Yeah, a drunk guy bumps into him and he's like, all right. And he, for some reason, he just he's the only drunk guy in the history of the world that's been like, lock me up, officer. Yeah, yeah, lock me up. And he's and like, no, I'm not going to. And he's like, well, why not? Yeah, he's like, what? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. What's going on? Something fishy's going on here. So Ted turns on the water for them and they and they fill up uh, the hole, actually, the, the bomb hole with water. So they've got water. they got water for a few months now. However, a mistake was made. Uh, poor uh, Hermione Battley, I think. No, I think no. it was... Um, I thought it was Edie. I think it was Molly. Molly. The well, one who has a thing for Frank. She had... Uh, tr- yes. She had tried to She had tried to turn the water on at some point in the basement of the building where they'd been storing their food, but forgot to turn the tap back off. Once the water came through. So when they go into the building, all the food has been flooded and is useless. And now, so they have tons of water, but they have no food. They have like f- six cans of food. Yeah, Exactly. So they've basically been pushed to the brink at this point, and uh, the locals prepare to evacuate and kind of admit defeat. So as they line up at the barbed wire to leave the town, uh, all, of a, all these people start showing up from the rest of London, and they start tossing food at them, vegetables and bread and like lots of stuff. They just start throwing it across the thing. And, um, and this, starts, this sets off. London is so taken with their story that they start to support them. And so they, they, they send a helicopter, which like pumps in a bunch of milk for them. They have they literally airlift pigs into the city. They don't airlift them. They airdrop them. Yeah. They, they fire them out of the plane with parachutes, and they just parachute yeah, them. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like insane. If pigs could fly, they literally did. <gasps> you did it. I did it, finally. So, with their bellies full and their morale raised, Pimlico decides against love, evacuation. I love some of those sentences he just wrote down and read <laughs> verbatim. 
this, I, I gotta express my writing talent. I, I like it. I like it. You're Pimlico, auditioning for another podcast. So with though. their morale raised and their bellies full, Pemlico decides against evacuation and will hold out as long as they can. And the public is clearly on their side, and they've been putting pressure on the politicians to resolve the situation and helping them with the food. And also, sieging your own people is rarely popular. Yeah. Uh, not a good way to get the public no, on your side. not a good way to get point. But the treasure turns out to be the sticking point. But Mr. Wicks comes up with a, with a compromise. They will lend this treasure to the British government, and in return, the British government will pay the interest back to Pimlico to help fund their uh, neighborhood. Yeah. So this is a wonderful agreement, and they sit down to have a celebratory feast as Pimlico is brought back into the fold as part of Her Majesty's government. Uh, well, Her Majesty's territory. They're all part of the government. They're all part of it now. And and there's a scene, of course, near the end where the, the feast tables are all set up, and uh, I forget who it is walking along, putting ration books down on the yeah. table. Mr. Pemberton says, oh, I never thought I'd be so happy to see these again. <laughs> and so they, they sit down for their meal, uh, and they announced that, that Pimlico was now officially returned and part of England again. And as soon as he says that, the skies open up and it begins to piss down rain. Yep. The end. There was a giant heat wave throughout the whole movie. Yes. And literally and metaphorically, the clouds have broken. The clouds of uh, strife have broken open. And the rain washes away all the problems in the world. And everybody is happy. Yeah. So Except rationing is still going and will go on for another five years. Five years! <laughs> well, they return to rationing, I'm sure, by the yeah. end of the film here. Well, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And the rationing continues for up to five years. So, I mean, we'll get into this at the end of the film, too. But I, I guess I just want to ask at this point, do you think this movie is... Because, um, I mean, ultimately they go back to rationing and like the style they didn't like at the beginning of the film... And I don't want to say propaganda because that's a little harsh for it, but do you think it's some sort of like version of that a little bit? I think it was. I think it was an expression of the people who were probably pretty fed up with rationing by 1949. Like I say, this is four years after the war is over. But I mean, the moral is that they go back to it ultimately. They do, but it, it's that the the devil of rationing is, I guess, better than trying to operate completely cut off from the rest of society. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So. In a way, it's kind of vouching for that rationing is probably the best possible option we have right well, now. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, absolutely. But also the fact that they that they're so mad about it too. I mean, the fact that and the fact when they when the rationing is let up, the fact that everybody goes down there because they just want to be able, like I say, to buy be able to buy pantyhose and not have to worry about buying, you know, only getting one pair for a month or something. I think what I'm just think, thinking is that the fact that it comes back around to that. Yeah. being the solution mm-hmm. is some is is something that sticks is something that stuck with me a little bit. Like, okay. Ultimately, we didn't like it, but also it's what kind of saved us. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and it did. And, and, you know, part of the reason why the rationing was still going on was because Britain, in addition to having just gone through the war and having their own problems, were also still had a tons of troops to feed because they were, you know, troops were operating in the occupied areas in Germany and, and, and Italy and uh, in various places in Europe. And so they had to feed all those people as well as their own troops and everything. So it was difficult at home also to keep the food spread around. So the rationing was kind of necessary to make it all last. And apparently the labor government didn't have the resources at that point to expand food production from where it had been. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it was kind of a necessary evil of the time. You know, nobody likes the idea of it, but you know, it's better that everybody gets fed some than, you know, some people getting nothing at all. Well, and I think that's what this movie comes around to. So you could, you could argue that it's a very, it's almost a socialist perspective in that way. A little bit. Yeah. Before we get into the background of the film, Jason, we are going to take a brief break. 
and we'll be right back. There was a time in the old days when if you wanted to get paid to listen to a podcast, you had to get your ration book, and you got a certain number of podcasts a week. But not anymore, Brendan. How would you like to get paid to listen to a podcast? Sign me up, mister. Absolutely. You could do it. Just go to PodCoin. PodCoin? Yes, sir, PodCoin. It's the only podcast app that pays you for listening to the podcast you already listen to. I have an Android phone, sir. How do I find it? Just go on the Android store and type in PodCoin. PodCoin. You could do the same on iOS or maybe even on BlackBerry. Probably not on BlackBerry, but you can definitely do it on iOS or Android. It's amazing. And and do you have, like, a code or something? Absolutely. Use code SCREENPOD to get yourself 300 free pod coins. Wow, mister. And you know, Brendan, you can spend pod coins on all sorts of stuff. You can get gift cards, or you can even donate it to charity. Ooh. There's a million things you can do with pod coins. So, I'm telling you, Brendan, go to the store... Download PodCoin uh-huh. and start earning your PodCoins today. Okay, I'll get on it right away. That's a good lad. And throw that ration book out. You don't need it no more. PodCoin will feed you now. Rip. Hello? What's all this then? Destroying a ration book? That's ten years in the jail, that is. Here we go again. Wah, wah. PodCoin. And we're back. Mm-hmm. Ooh, hit that shit. Yeah, Jason. Oh, yeah. <coughs> I'm good. So let's get into the background of this movie a little bit, Jason. Tell me about it. Well, the film was produced simultaneously alongside two other movies on this list, which we haven't talked about yet. So this is a Lord of the Rings-like situation where they filmed it all at the same time? Well, I mean, they're not connected. I mean, maybe they are. Yeah, so the other two movies were uh, Whiskey Galore and Kind Hearts and Coronets, which we haven't talked about yet on the show. The former is on the list. Is the latter? Both of them are. Wow. Yeah. So they, one actually, Kind Hearts and Coronets is in the top ten. Ooh. So it's very high up there. And they're both uh, they're both Ealing Studios. So these are three movie three films that Ealing Studios was working on. So all three of these movies were released in, in theaters in the span of like two months. Mm. All three of these movies at Ealing Studios, which is interesting, like I said, because all three of them are on this list. Uh, the writer of the film, T.E.B. Clark. Classically British name. <laughs> uh, was inspired by an incident actually during the Second World War when uh, there was a maternity ward of Ottawa Civic Hospital. And this is a very well-known story here in our country of Canada. Uh, where Ottawa Civic Hospital, the maternity ward of, of that hospital was temporarily de- declared extraterritorial by the Canadian government so that when, so that when the then Princess Juliana of the Never- Netherlands gave birth to Princess Margaret of the Netherlands. The baby was born on Dutch territory. Mm -hmm. I would not lose her right to the throne. Absolutely. The airlift of food supplies into the Burgundian uh, city, as as shown in the movie, was influenced by the flights of food and supplies during the Berlin blockade of 1948 to 1949. Absolutely, which is a fascinating time and story uh, and basically just flying over Russian territory and just, just dropping food in. Dropping, like landing unloading and it was like planes in and out all day all day early day all day every day absolutely 
Now, as far as the filming of the movie itself, despite the fact that this movie uh, supposedly takes place during a heat wave, they actually filmed it during an abnormally wet season. <laughs> so the poor weather caused tons of delays, and it got over. It went over time, over budget. Uh, shooting started early each day in attempt an attempt to get the first successful shot completed before 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. So you got to think they were there at like four in the morning. Yeah. Uh, an average of uh, ten, this is, I have a lot of information on this for some reason. An average of ten takes a day were taken in an attempt to get two and a half minutes of usable film per day. Wow! Uh, there were arguments between the director Henry Cornelius and the producer Michael Balkin throughout the production because Balkin thought he was doing basically just thought he was doing a shitty job directing the movie. And uh, Cornelius was like, "As soon as I'm done this, I'm fucking out." So he finished the movie. Left Dealing Studios did not work for them ever again. It just did not get along. Oh. Totally different. Uh, I thought you meant he like just abandoned the movie business completely. Uh, no, he just did not make anything for Ealing Studios ever again. They just, there's, there's difference of opinions. Some produ- It's like with the producer though, it's like, you put up or shut up. You're the one that's making, you're, you're essentially, you know, controlling the movie. If you don't like the director, fucking fire him. Yeah. You should have like done your research maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jason, that's really all I have for a lot of the background. We'll get into the kind of recognition of this movie a little bit later, but let's let's dive into this movie a little bit more. Well, first thing I want to say right out of the gate is that at the beginning we have uh, what is a joke that n- neither myself nor you got. No, we were like, who is this dedicated to yeah. the memory of? The, the movie says, dedicated to the memory of, and then the next scene, there's no name. It's just a picture of a bunch of books and magazines. And we're like, is they were they supposed to superimpose a name? Maybe somebody local over there or something? But no, it's actually those books and magazines are actually ration books. Which is funny because the rationing was still on at this time. So that was an even funnier joke, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also uh, wrote down early in this movie when the guys are working in the, uh, the, the pit... Uh, one of them has headphones, and I, I did not know that headphones existed in 1949. Yes, uh, yeah, they did. Because, well, they were used during the war. If you, um, like, especially like tank tankers would have them. So maybe this dude was a tanker, and he brought them back with him. Maybe. 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 What I did get, maybe you can help me help me explain this, um, because there's a thing here early on where. You know, they're about to defuse this bomb. Mm. And then the guy comes in, their kind of superior, and says, Oh, did you read the papers? We're not defusing this bomb. We're going to blow it up because there's another bomb somewhere else uh, that they're going to defuse or something. I was confused with that. I was like, Wait, so is it because they thought this was the last bomb, but it's not the last bomb? They want to make a spectacle out of it? Like, I don't really understand. It may be a question that their talents were were more needed to defuse another bomb, that it was more important and that they could get away with just, you know, blowing this bomb up since it was in the middle of an open lot and wasn't okay. going to... So imagine if the bomb was like in a in a block of, of apartment buildings. You can't just go in and blow it up without blowing up a lot of the apartment buildings. Right. So they probably needed them somewhere else where they were more needed. You were talking about also, let's, let's get, into, get again into the beginning of the movie. Before mm-hmm. the bomb even goes off, Arthur... Mr. Pemberton tries to present his idea of the swimming pool slash playground area so the kids can play, which is again funny because the kids are already playing in yeah. this pit because they're kids and they don't really care. Yeah. Uh, but while after he, they basically take a vote and say no. Yeah, they all vote against him because they just want to sell the land. I, I love this. Uh, the guy at the head of the table reads a description that they're going to propose to people to buy the land mm. or to, to buy the land, right? They yeah. want to sell it. 
he reads the description of the land as we're seeing this desolate... Now, keep in mind, this is like a desolate area with a fucking unexploded bomb in the middle. And this is what he's saying at, in a description. And this just makes me fun. This just makes me laugh. I should like to read the proposed advertisement. For sale, freehold. Valuable building land in much sought-after position. Eminently suitable for business premises or factory site. Heart of busy trading center. Unlimited prospect. Full transport facilities to hand. Special appeal to purchaser of vision. No obstruction to future development. Thoroughly safe investment. I love when the punchline of something is a bomb exploding. (laughs) Or like the punchline is like completely different from what was just said. You know what I mean? Like thoroughly safe investment. Bang. Yeah. <laughs> I like also, we haven't really talked about this character a lot, but the character of Frank. Yes. The, the guy who owns the, like... I thought he was like the stock boy in there, or like the fish guy. What was it? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought he kind of... Uh, maybe I thought he owned it, and like the girl worked for him. I, I feel like he's supposed to be like a young guy, even though he looks like he's forty five. He's almost as old as the main character. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no. He's probably... I think, I think... Yeah, no, I think he's like 40. But... His whole thing is there's there's a joke there's a joke with him that feels like very modern comedy esque where they're doing research for the uh, which they find out eventually is the D- Duke of Burgundy mm-hmm. and he does this thing where they're they're like here look at this book and see what you can find and he does this thing where he's like oh wow wow and and Arthur Pemberton goes over and he's like what did you find he's like this is a saltwater fish that could blow up to three times its own size <laughs> like. That's a very modern. It's a very Mel Brooks comedy kinda. bit. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I got a little bit of Mel Brooks from this. Uh, not this wasn't. I feel like this didn't have as much lunacy. No, as Mel it's Brooks. not as nearly as madcap as a as a Mel Brooks film. But there's a little bits in there. Elements of it. Yes. Uh, I'll, oh, I also I have to play this bit too because as soon as the kids roll this wheel in and the bomb goes off, all, once they find out there's all this treasure, they're like, oh well. Which kid ultimately was the one who did it? Because at first, Mister Pemberton is like, "Well, that's my gold," and the cop is the cop Ted is like, "Well, hold on now. If it wasn't for this kid here, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have found it." Mm-hmm. And what follows here is a montage of all the parents trying to convince their kids that they were the ones responsible. <laughs> now, don't you try and come it over me. You set it off. I saw you. You weren't there. Call your own father a liar, would you? Okay, okay, I did it. Good boy. Come on, Charlie boy. You can tell me. Mum won't be cross. Don't want a sweet. You'll have a sweet and like it. So you admit, quite frankly, that the explosion of the bomb was solely due to this thoughtless action of yours, and yours alone. Yes, sir! (laughs) Well, well. After nine years as coroner of this district, I find this a new and most refreshing experience. I congratulate the parents of Pimlico on such a fine crop of exceptionally honest youngsters. Did he say he was the coroner? Uh, I don't think so. I thought he said I was the coroner of Pimlico. My nine years as the coroner of Pimlico. The the quarter, maybe? I don't know. If he said coroner, does that mean something different in England? Because here it's a person who uh, deals with declaring people uh, dead and why they died. Well, not declaring them dead, but, (laughs) but trying to figure out why they died or how they died. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he said coroner, but maybe. Mm. But yeah, that's all the kids, like, are all convinced by their parents to admit that they were the sole one responsible. 
so that the parents would have some kind of right to the uh, riches underneath. Everybody wants money. I just love how the judge is like, you are exceptional youngsters, all taking the blame for this. You're all <laughs> you're, such honest kids. Your parents raised you all so well. <laughs> and that's and that's kind of the, the a bit of a disagreement between the daughter and uh, Mr. Pemberton. Because uh, she thinks it's like an opportunity to make a bunch of money, but he is of the view that it's history. It, it, this is all very important artifacts. Yeah, she's okay. like, screw history. This is money. Yeah, let's get rich, Dad. Uh, so I do like we. You did mention Brazil a little bit. Um, this there's a lot of bureaucracy stuff. Uh, he gets passed around a lot. Like yeah. he start he calls up Whitehall, uh, the government. And they're doing this whole thing where, like, oh, no, you have to deal with that department, or you have to deal with this department, or you have to do this, you have to do that. It's it's Brazil and a lot, and even sort of, like, I'm all right, Jack. Like, it seems to be this new common theme running through this, you know, this fifth of the movies that we've yep. been doing, like, this this section of 20. Because, mm. I mean, the, it's funny, because we kind of been hitting a different theme for each one. Because the first one, we had a lot of start at the end and flashback to the beginning. Yeah. As that was, we did a lot of that in the first 20 movies. And in this one, it seems to be a lot of bureaucracy and, like, uh, yeah, just getting passed around different departments and mm-hmm. nobody really dealing with the issue. Uh, did wanting you, money. Yeah. Did you notice that – did you catch the little reference to the Churchill speech? Where uh, – so so after the immigration stuff starts happening yeah. and they start stopping people from going in and out of, uh, of uh, Pimlico or Burgundy, whatever – I think it's Mr. Pemberton's daughter. I think it's Shirley. Says, "We'll fight them in the tram lines. We'll fight them in the local." <laughs> I thought that was great. It was a nice, nice reference. <laughs> oh yeah. So how do you feel about? There's one part of the movie I don't. I don't know how much I'm on board for. Mm. It's not like it's bad, but it just feels like unnecessary. Maybe. Mm. How do you feel about the kind of romance subplot between the Duke and like uh, Shirley, the daughter? Well, it, it does feel like one of those romances that was put into the movie just because. That's what you do. You Studio. put a romance in the movie, yeah. and it, but it also allowed for the um, kind of uh, unrequited love that uh, Frank Frank is putting out because he clearly has an interest in Shirley because she's, she's a hottie, and then Molly has an interest in Frank. Yeah, and she even sings uh, that song. It's like I don't want to set the world on fire. Which, by the way, I was so happy to hear because that is a classic old song. But that also, in my life, that is one of the most associated songs with the Fallout franchise of video games. Okay. Uh, and in fact, in the I believe that was in the original Fallout was a, a version of I don't want to set the world on fire, which is an appropriate uh, song for a game about a post-apocalypse after a nuclear war. Because they do set the world on fire. They do literally. But yeah, so I don't know. Like I thought the the romance, like it was fine. It was like cute and everything. They had a they had a funny little scene outside where you hear a person gargling in their window from like the top floor somehow. Yeah. <laughs> like, like cuts off their kiss. Um, and I mean their ages don't seem that bad. Although I guess he's like thirty five and she's like nineteen. But that's not terrible. Oh, in, terms in those of these days, movies. that was that was just normal. That's not that considering what we've watched. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's nothing. Uh, oh and this this needs to be heard so this is uh one of those cars with the megaphone uh is like barking orders from the other side of pimlico and mr pemberton decides to get one of his own and fire back so these are just two megaphones back and forth this is your last chance save your best mate we've made up our minds and we're stopping right where we are i'll thank you not to interrupt me sir i'll thank you not to raise your voice to me sir if i can't raise my voice in my own country we are sick and tired of your voice in this country. Now shut up. I beg your pardon. I said shut up. Shut up yourself. 
And the greatest thing about that is that there's like when each one is talking, it's literally just a close up of the megaphone yes, back, and the forth. back and forth. <laughs> yeah, you never see you never see the actual person talking. Uh, what, see, what the other thing? The other thing I really like the newsreel. The newsreel yes. part is great. Very authentic. And it's a very uh, cool way to kind of bring us up to speed on where we are right now. Well, and it's actually kind of the equivalent of today when you watch a movie and you see like, oh, they, they hired Wolf Blitzer to pretend it's an actual CNN broadcast and yeah. a fake movie broadcast. I mean, it's so trope today, but I mean, back in those days, this was probably, you know, cutting edge shit. This has been done in Citizen Kane where there's like a newsreel within the movie yeah. about what's going on at in the, the movie. At the beginning, I think. Yes. Yeah. Which, if I remember correctly, Robert Wise said they tied the film to the back of a car and drove it down the street so that it would be all messed up and streaky so it would look like an old newsreel. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, fun fact, it's not related to this movie at all. <laughs> That's, that's what you listen to this podcast that's for, right. folks. Uh, I also wrote down that there's a headline in the newspaper that says, World Sympathy for Crushed Cockneys. Hey, that's a good one. Uh, another interesting thing, too, is like you have this turn of events, kind of. Because at first, the town, they hate this idea of rationing. They hate the idea of ration books. And ultimately, when they start running out of stuff, before they start getting food from everyone, before they get the water, they're like, we kind of have to do this ourselves now. We kind of have to ration because of our supplies. And they I guess they gained a new appreciation for why they were rationing in the first place. I think that that helps my theory out is that this yeah. movie's kind of pro-rationing. <laughs> and kind of related to that is this whole idea of like the 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 nation of Pimlico becoming Burgundy, being cut off from the rest of England. It kind of makes me think of like what happened to England during the war. Like all of England, because of course, like I don't, I'm, I don't want to get too much into this, but I mean, I'm pretty sure during the war when they had like supply ships come over, the Nazis would regularly halt them and then cut off supplies to England. Well, they, I think they would be more likely to straight up just torpedo them. Yeah, yeah, and cut. Well, yeah, and like cut off supplies to yeah. England so they wouldn't get their food, ration, clothing, whatever. Which, to be fair, the British did a much better job at blockading the Germans uh, and and uh, really squeezing them on their supply line. Yeah, but fuck them during that war. That's right. <laughs> but, it was their but, fault. Yeah. But no, I'm just saying like that seems to me like it's like the same thing happening here. Kind of. It's like the rest the rest of England has cut them off. Yes. And so this nation of Pimlico is kind of going through the same thing they did during the war. It's being surrounded on all sides. Yeah. People are being An put... An island in- like Mother England... Well, sorry. Uh, like Great Britain herself. Being put into camps, etc. That was a deleted scene. Yeah. I was going to say, they, they thought that was a little too dark for this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only other really thing I, ha- I have left to say, I mean, if you, you got some more, definitely definitely give us some more stuff. But the only other note I kind of have is uh, there's a very quick reference. I don't know if you noticed on this one of the signs towards the end when they're like, like just stuff for each person, I guess. One of the signs actually just says Ealing. Mm. And I just thought that was a yeah. cute little yeah. reference to Ealing Studios. Well, also, I believe there's a, a place in London called Ealing. Well, yeah, tomato, tomato. But yes, it would probably be a direct reference to the yeah. the company that made it. Um, I don't remember who it was that said this, but they were talking about some animal. Uh, and they were talking about this animal fucking, and they referred to it as when he's courting. Which is a fun, a fun, really British way to say, like, oh, yeah, he's going to fuck. I also, uh, is cock a word to use to describe a police officer back in the day? Cog, I believe. Okay, because it sounds it sounded like at one point Hermione, Hermione Baddeley just called that officer a cock. I also enjoy when the police officer shows up after everything had gone down and they go, just like you to turn up after it's all over. Ha <laughs> ha, you fucking idiot. Oh, after the bomb goes off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I love, again, that, that huge lighter. I want a lighter like that. Just because you don't see them these days because, you, you know, smoking isn't... Ne- 
obviously not as acceptable as it once was, and so you don't get those kind of cool pieces anymore. And also, I don't know, did they have portable lighters back then that weren't Zippos? Tell me, Brendan, I need to know. I don't know. Well, what good are you? Did you like Hermione Baddeley in this way? I had a good time. She was good. Yeah. She, was, she was young and virile. She was, <laughs> it was only 10 years before Room at the Top. She didn't look too much different. I mean, she looked a little younger, but uh, she had a she had a definitely an energy to her. Um, I okay, you know what though, Jason? Do you, uh, sorry, do you have anything? No, else? no, keep going. Okay. I, I've got stuff to say, but I, I just I want to play one more clip because Please we do. can't go this whole episode without playing a clip of Margaret Rutherford. Absolutely. And this is the scene where she meets the Duke or the Duke's descendant, mm-hmm. and she gets very like fangirlish. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely need to play this just to appreciate her performance in this movie. Here we go. Good morning, sir. I hope you'll pardon us for I am the culprit. This is Professor Hatton Jones of the London University. The moment our good friend told me the news, I was Arian. I was Zephyrus. Nothing could detain me from instant communion with a living survivor of the House of Charolais. Uh, you have examined my documents. Oh, a cursory glance. Personally, I have no doubt at all as to the question of your lineage. Forgive me, are you a bleeder? I beg your pardon. Do you suffer from hemophilia? When you cut yourself, do you bleed interminably? No, I don't think so. Oh, pity. It's in the family. Definitely in the family. Oh, I am very sorry. Don't hurry you, Professor, but I really think we ought to be... (laughs) I mustn't embark on family matters or I'll be here all day. I have to take these off for a sulfate reaction test. I'll soon be back, though, depend on that. Now that I know you're truly extant, I go away satisfied. What Gollock would give to be in my shoes? I could even put Schmill in the shade. (laughs) I love her. She's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, A scene i got to point out is when... um, What's his name? Simon? Simon? The French guy? What was his name? Oh, God. I just have him as as the Duke. Yeah, anyways, so... When he first... When he first... John John Wayne, the Duke. Yeah, John Wayne. When he first sees uh, uh, Shirley... Yeah. He gives her the leeriest look. Like, just the most leering, like, stare. That's just like, whoa! Whoa! Simmer down, creep! Well, I mean, even, like... um, I think it was in that clip where he gets introduced. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a little bit of a pause near the end, and that's him, like, giving her it the stare gives her this look that's just like, holy God, man, back off, you're going to get arrested. Yeah, it's 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 almost on the level of, like, Mike Myers, the way Mike Myers looks at that guitar in Wayne's World, Absolutely, like, he will yeah. be mine. You, oh, yes, she will, will be, be mine. mine. <laughs> um, another, another bit I really enjoy is when they're talking, referring to them as undesirable aliens, and they should boot them out of the country, and then the guy's like, yeah, but it's their own country. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Weird. Again, doesn't hold, doesn't have relevance today at all. And actually, along with your theory uh, that maybe this is a piece of like pro uh, ration propaganda, there's the scene where one of the black marketeers comes down and I think Frank calls him out on, on selling fake uh, shrimp or something or fake fish. He's like, he or says, selling a mislabeled fish. Yeah, he says it's not, it's not Italian, it's British or something yeah, like that. Something like that. Yeah. And he calls him out on it and he's like, well, whatever. And then, I mean, you know, that that is a po- problem with a black market. What are you going to do? Ar- what are you going to do? Arrest me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Ted's ridiculous uniform is great for a police officer because he looks like he came straight out of the Serengeti. Oh, when they're talking about them being English and and, and the, we're not, we're Burgundians. And it's, go, it's because we're English, we're sticking up for our right to be Burgundians. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, you think about, like, all the various English-descended uh, colonies that have uh, uh, upstarted and, and kind of become their own country one way or another. Definitely a part of being English is uh, throwing off the yoke of the queen. Or king. 
or I prince judge. or chancellor. No, it would be a king or queen. Or Darth Vader. Or a Lord Protector. Or Kubla Khan. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. Back to, back to, we're back to or, uh, Citizen Kane again. <laughs> sure, let's just do an episode of Citizen Kane. You has got to get out of your system. Absolutely. Uh, when the water is cut off, they, 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 liquor makes do. Yeah, oh yeah, he's <laughs> liquor for everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Cold bore in a heat wave. I like that line. I do like I do like the um, the whole heist scene where they're where they're taking water. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit, but I do like that. That feels very modern too. That feels like an old school heist, like a like a heist movie. Yeah. Like they're they got all these pieces in place. Like we're distracting the cops over here, and Ted's coming in over here, and we get the hoses here. Mm-hmm. Like it it feels almost like an Ocean's Eleven type yeah. thing. You know and mean? it's what they have to do. They got to survive. They got to invade the neighboring country to get water. Which <laughs> is funny because right before they do that, you hear the two guards kind of talking to each other, and one of them actually says like. One of them says, like, should we be cutting them off like this? And the other guy's like, what do you think Burgundy's going to do? Invade England? And that's exactly, <laughs> exactly what they what do. Exactly what Ted does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed, too, uh, uh, it's nice that they get a skywriter. It goes up in the sky and it's like, we support you. <laughs> it gets, <laughs> all that stuff starts out like, okay, yeah, they're, like, throwing them food. And then it's like, it gets really ridiculous. Like, like there are just, like, like double-decker buses just driving by and people just hawking packages out the window at well, the barbed wire. One small child is, like, eating a lollipop and throws it over, it throws too. a lollipop over. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and then it rains at the end. That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a metaphor at the end. It's a short movie, and it ends almost very abruptly. 84 minutes. Yep. It ends when it should end, honestly, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I don't I, think it needed to go much longer. But I will say, um, one thing I did write down, too, is England is has a, a stereotype of it rains all the time, yes. right? So I also felt like when it rained at the end, that was almost like, oh, we are back in no, England. No, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. It's like, oh, welcome back to England. Here's all the rain you missed. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like, because the whole movie, there's a heat wave, right? And it's like, yeah. And, yeah. and also, the heat's over because the the the... Battling back and forth is over, over yeah. too. So a lot of like different things going on there. Uh, so let's talk about the. Uh, you'll be surprised. You might be surprised to know this thing actually gets nominated for an Oscar. Oh really? Does not win, but it does get nominated for uh, best story slash screenplay. No, oh, okay. Uh, it loses to a war film called Battleground. Never seen it. Well, I don't know, but that's the that's the only Oscar nomination it gets. But I'm surprised it got any. Honestly, yeah, that's impressive. Uh, and at the BAFTAs, it was all. It also received one nomination. Did not win though, but it was nominated for best British film. But it lost to a film that's actually the number one movie on the BFI Top 100. It lost to The Third Man, Ooh. which we will talk about one day. Absolutely. The movie was financially successful. I don't yeah. have the exact numbers, but it makes it, sense to me because people would really relate to this story. I it, it did do well, and actually, oh, I just realized this was on my birthday. I mean, almost 40 years before I was born, but sure. still. But on October 23rd, 1949, in the U.S., it was released. And there was soil imported and placed in front of the cinema. So you had uh, people in British policemen uniforms <laughs> who actually handed out mock passports for people <laughs> coming in and invited, like, passersby to step onto English soil to see the film. It was very, like, it was kind of, that's kind of cool. Like that's, that, that's a very good play, gimmick that you would think a, of in a more modern sense. But they were doing good gimmicks even back then. Yeah, well, I mean, even, like, I think things like Psycho had gimmicks and stuff. And that was only, like, ten years later, right? I just remember the gimmick with Psycho being the sign outside that said, please don't reveal the rest of this movie to people. Did you know I finally figured out, uh, you know, the whole thing where it says, do not let people into the movie... 
after it has already started. Yeah. I found out why they specified that. Well, because apparently back in the day, people would just go in and watch whatever was on. And they might see the last half of a movie and then newsreel and then the first half of the movie they just watched. And or the first half of a different movie. Then they're disrupting the, the watching of the movie. Right. Uh, and obviously, people, but but I think too back in those days, like movies were much more, yeah, like you say, in and out. So the, the atmosphere was more like a wrestling match uh, today than it was like a play, which is kind of what, you know, nowadays people are very set on being quiet in movie theaters and watching the movie, or at least ideally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what we'd like, and I wish we had an Alamo Draft House here. Is all mm-hmm. I'm gonna say. Uh, so it ended up this this film actually ended up being adapted to a radio play on two separate occasions as well. Look for our look for our re, uh, review of those radio plays in the future on now for something completely similar. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I wrote this down to you. This is a. Um, this is uh, from these two film historians, Anthony Aldgate and Jeffrey Richards. They describe this movie as a progressive comedy because it upsets the established social order to promote the well-being of a community. Hmm. They say the view of the community put forward in the film has been criticized as being anachronistic uh, because the wartime unity had already passed by 1949. Yeah. According to these two historians, the welcome return to the ration books at the end of the film signifies an acceptance that the measures of the British government are in the best interests of the people. That's what I think. Yeah. I agree with them. I think that's what this movie's trying to say. You're saying it was in the best interest of the British people to ration? Well, I'm not saying it is or isn't, but I'm just saying that's what this movie thinks. Pick a a side, Brendan. Don't waffle. MAGA. That's a side we can pick? (laughs) No, don't pick it. Oh, okay. I won't be your friend anymore. All right. right. Uh, But, um... Yeah, I mean that's what I think too. I think the the, the movie definitely has this kind of acceptance of it. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah. Uh, it was you know I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this very much. Yeah, it was, it was it was a fun movie. It was an interesting counterpoint or not counterpoint, but like an interesting companion piece. I would say to I'm all right, Jack. Like, you know, very much in that era and and getting a sense of the, the types of people. You know, and you know, an all right, Jack. We get sense of all sorts of people, but in this movie specifically, these like you know these kind of lower class, middle class residents of this modest neighborhood. Yeah, and it it kind of gives me that. It, it, obviously, the tone is not the same, and the humor is not the same, but it kind of reminded me of The Simpsons in the sense of like. That they, they have this real sense of community uh, that they have in The Simpsons, too. I, I don't know that it's necessarily good on The Simpsons, but but you get a sense of Springfield as a whole. And in the same way in this movie, the characters really make Pimlico as a whole feel like its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought no, that was really cool. I, you, you, I think you messaged me that earlier in the week, and mm. yeah, that's, that's, a, that's definitely uh, that's a, that's a good point. I will say that I liked this movie. I had some laughs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's... I think it's the lesser of the comedies, though, that we kind of mentioned as well. Like, I think I think I'm all right. Jack had it was a little bit stronger of a satire. I, I, th- I think it was a little bit funnier for sure. But yeah, this is also a movie that I think if you had lived in that era, if you'd gone through that, this movie would have been fucking hilarious. Yeah, sure. I mean, there were probably I liked it. I liked yeah. it quite a bit. Um, I'm just saying, like in comparison, like to those other movies, it just falls like a little bit shorter for me. Yeah. It, I. Yeah, it's 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 good. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. I, I do recommend watching it. It's, it's an interesting time capsule. Yes, I just think we've kind of covered a lot of the same ground too mm. with some of the movies we've done yeah. so far. And like, I don't want to be that person that's like, we need like, it's like kind of like on the AFI list. Yeah. There's a lot of Vietnam 
and World War II movies. It's like, do we need that many? Like, can but we... you know, you could argue too that that is a reflection of American culture. That the war movie that the, the is very popular. Sure, uh, and maybe that's is a reflection of British culture that we really, you know, we get to see these British people being British. I I, I understand that. I just think like if you're going to do a top 100 list, maybe you don't need a whole lot of one thing. Well, who knows? I mean, maybe the 2019 version of this list would be much different. By the way, I would love to see an update. BFI, get us, on it. Give us a new list. I want to if they release a new list by the time we come to the end of this list on the podcast, we'll do the new ones. You hire goddamn David Mitchell to go down there and pick out 100 new movies. <laughs> I don't think they'll do 100 new movies, no, but I would like be, to... <laughs> the only good movies are the movies made in the last 20 years. You have to pick them. <laughs> I would love to see an update though. I mean, it's been 20 years. Let's it do been. it. Let's do it. It's been 20 years since the Dreamcast came out. Oh, shit. So it's time for a new BFI list. Sega Dreamcast on the list. Which, uh, not not to go too far behind the curtain, but today is the 53rd anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek, and tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the release of the Dreamcast. And now you know when we record. At least this specific episode. <laughs> But enough of this bullshit, Brendan. Enough of this bullshit. We, we've we covered this movie, Passport to Pimlico. We didn't have a fucking clue what it was going to be. No idea, and uh, pleasantly surprised. So check it out at your local blockbuster. Yeah, good luck <laughs> with all of that. Yes. <laughs> but, Jason, we come to the point in the show where we need to find out what we're doing next week. What movie we are going to talk about oh, yeah. on the list next week. We're going to see. It's your turn to roll, I believe. It is my turn! So, are you going to up the drama? Are you going to do one at a time? Oh, yeah. Well, this is how we do it now. So, we have a a 10s D10 and a regular D10. Brendan is helpfully holding the dice up to the mic so that you can see them. (laughs) I know. I don't know why I'm doing that. (laughs) Uh, So, as you can see, it's on camera. Is this on camera? The the green dice, as you can clearly see, is our 10s dice. And the red die is our uh, ones. I would have loved if you just switched it for no reason. (laughs) Since they can't see it anyway. They wouldn't know. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna roll, and Jason's gonna roll, and we're gonna find out which movie on the BFI Top 100 we're gonna talk about next week based on the number we get. Infuse me with magic, listeners, and see what we get. All right. Here and I go. made and secretly behind the scenes, I made a guess, and Jason made a guess. So I'll be curious to see if we get that. So let's do the tens first. Ten. We're ten. Yeah. So that's the that's the top ten. Isn't it? Uh, that's 10 to 19, so we're probably going to get something we haven't done. All right. All right, what do we got? And the last number is 8. Henry V, we've already done. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're Here we go again. again. Uh, oh, man. There's there's like two movies that we've already done, and of course we got the, yep. one of those. Well, uh, Henry V? Henry V and Bridge on the River Kwai was right. 11. All right, let's try this again. 60. 60. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. And the number is 63. Roll again. We did. We already did. Uh, that's the movie we just did. Passport to Pimlico. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, uh, we're already good. All right. Come on. Third time's a charm. Let's do this. And our tens are the zeros. Oh, boy. Okay. We're been to the top ten again. All right. Here we go. Top ten. What are we going to get? What are we going to get? I'm going to jerk myself off here, clearly. What are we going to get? And... Four! Number four! 39 steps. Roll again. God damn it! Jesus, fuck. I didn't think we did that many movies so far. We haven't done half them. We haven't. Not even quite a third yet. Our tens dice this time. (laughs) 70. 
And our ones dice, ladies and gentlemen, get ready for it. Here we go. 71. Thank God. Okay. We're going to go a lot more modern this time. Uh, we're going to talk about 1998. The film Elizabeth. Oh. Yeah. I'm excited. So, I, uh, I've seen bits of that in the past, but I'm excited to actually watch it. I saw it in, I saw it in English class in grade 9 when I was uh, way too immature to appreciate it, so I don't remember anything. So, yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw it on VHS, at least parts of it, in, in an English class as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious about this movie. I, I don't really know much. So 1998's Elizabeth starring Kate Blanchett. And then on our, uh, when we do a side podcast, we could explore Elizabeth the Golden Age, which is the sequel that came out a couple years ago. That will be, that will come up afterwards. Absolutely. I think we'll, I think, you know, I think that just to make it easy, we'll probably just do them at the end of this 20, batch of 20, yeah. just to make it easier. Or whenever we feel like it. Yeah. All right, folks, so that's what we got. Next week, we're doing Elizabeth, so load your VCRs up and check it out. Should be an easy one to find, honestly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not not a problem. Might even be on Netflix. Who knows? Before we get to that, which is going to be in a week from now, but you're going to sit here and wait for that week to happen. Wait for that week to go by, right? Yes, sir. Okay, good. I just want to uh, say that if you would like to follow us on the social media, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for Screen and Country. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find Jason on Twitter at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And make sure to bring your ration books as well. That's right. We, we will arrest you if you don't have proper ration books. <laughs> but until that time, Jason, I just have to say to you, Brandon, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for Screen and Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Pimlico. Pim like soul. Pim like soup. Pimlico. Pimbutu. Pemberton. Pemberton. <gasps> There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of dough. Just you wait and see There'll be love and laughter And peace ever after Tomorrow The shepherd will tend his sheep, the valley will bloom again, and Jimmy will... Hi guys, we interrupt your favorite podcast to interrupt you with an ad for your new favorite podcast. Wait, wait, isn't this playing on somebody else's show? Exactly. So then how are we... I thought we were their new favorite podcast. Well, we're going to become their new favorite podcast after they hear this advertisement for our show. What's our show called, Justine? Superiority Complex. Yeah. Where can they find us, Patrick? Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You can go to at Soup Complex on Twitter, S-O-U-P Complex, and you can go to Facebook.com slash Soup Complex. But our main page is 
on Podbean. And you can find us there at www.superioritycomplex.podbean.com. New episodes are out every Thursday. Justine, yes. what do we talk about on the Superiority Complex? Nerdy stuff. Perfect. Don't get all sensual with your voice. Yeah, did you hear that? I heard it. It's a little inappropriate. If you want to hear a little more of that, tune in to the Superiority Complex. One more time, Justine, what do we talk about? Nerdy stuff. Nah, wasn't no. the same. You tried. Hey, this is Liz. And this is Heather. And we are Nerdy Bitches Podcast. A show where two geeky ladies podcast their way through pop culture. From movies and TV to our regular book club and everything in between, we bring you our favorite fandoms with a feminine eye. We're talking Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, DC Marvel, comic books, and anime. And don't forget sci-fi, fantasy, action movies, video games, D&D, board games, and so much more. Be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbeam, or wherever you find awesome podcasts. You can also find us hanging out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and at nerdybitches.com. Talk to you soon.